Discussion of truth. Okay, we are a little tardy here. Uh, we've got uh, Den Bishop standing by. Going to bring him in without much further ado. We just ended with Andy Thomas, UK-based author, and we started the show uh, a couple of hours ago with uh, Dr. Michael Hall out of Miami Beach. Let's bring on, uh, without any further ado, again, uh, Den Bishop, because he's been waiting for a few moments. Ringing in Den Bishop. Um, and... Uh, Bishop? Yes, Den. Hi, Ian Trottier, Discussions of Truth. Uh, sorry for the tardiness. How are you today, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? Uh, fantastic. Thank you for uh, standing by. I'm glad uh, glad you, uh, to bring you on. Um, I, I've mentioned a little bit about, uh, for listeners, a little bit about who you are and what you represent. You're the president of Holmes Murphy and Associates. Uh, you have written, uh, this seems to be, as far as I uh, uh, know, your second book on health care reform in the United States. Would you take a moment, please, sir, and uh, and tell listeners a little bit about uh, uh, who you are, what you do, and, uh, and, and their most recent book that you've written? Sure. You know, my name is Jen Bishop. I'm president of Holmes Murphy and have spent the uh, last 30 plus years uh, in my career of working with employers primarily and trying to help them navigate the healthcare system, improve the uh, cost and quality of programs for their employees, but also spent a reasonable amount of time working with hospitals and healthcare systems and insurance companies and trying to help them improve their performance. And have written a recent book called The Voter's Guide to Healthcare. And, um, you know, and the reason that I've written the book is uh, healthcare in the United States is the most complicated consumer industry in the world. And I think voters, uh, voters need to get educated on this issue and, uh, and vote smart. <laughs> right. And so, and we've got, we've got, you know, a perfect time to be talking about, um, a, a, a talking about healthcare reform in the United States, at least anyway, uh, with this uh, with this coronavirus epidemic, which is uh, of course uh, a threat to uh, all walks of life. Um, what is, in your view, uh, Den? What is the biggest obstacle facing? I mean, we we, we can certainly go into uh, a, a, a cor big super PAC corporations and, uh, and, and 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 the scale being weighed down on one side or the other in regards to that. But what is what is the biggest, in your view, Den? Because we don't we don't seem to have across the board in the U.S. Again, uh, we're, you're taking a nonpartisan uh, approach. We don't seem to have this outcry from the general public, unless it just gets squashed by mainstream. Uh, we don't seem to have this outcry calling for this uh, universal health care system. Yet our neighbor to the north, Canada, has got one. It seems like. Uh, you know, other uh, first world advanced uh, civilizations uh, are taking care of of their people at least on a basic level. Um, that's not happening in the U.S. It's it's more of a, a survival of the fittest, uh, if you will. Um, why is it not happening in your view, Den? That is, let me We've clarify. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, you got a couple of things going on. One is that uh, that independent American spirit. <laughs> okay. And I think a lot of Americans just don't want to be told what to do. And, uh, you know, so I, I grew up in Texas and I know in Texas, nobody wants to be told what to do. So I think some of it is that, but there, you know, another massive driver of this kind of balance between public and private in healthcare is the, the size of healthcare in terms of percentage of the economy and in terms of jobs. Um, so healthcare in the United States is largely a for-profit system. 
So it's the right. number one employer. There are more people that work in healthcare than any other single industry in the country. And it's, you know, it's 18% of our gross, gross domestic product. And there's a lot of people that earn a living based on the current system. And that I think independent American system, uh, you know, I can't, nobody yep. wants to be told what to do. Right. <laughs> Especially in healthcare. Fear, I think a lot of people have fear if the government were to take over healthcare, you know, does that mean healthcare is going to have the administrative, you know, love and support of the IRS? <laughs> and, and so I think people have some anxiety although they also know that the system we have really doesn't work very well for right. a whole lot of people. Right. What, what is, and, and so how do, how do you, how, how, how do Americans get past the nonpartisan? And of course, uh, you know, it, the, the, the uh, it, we'll go mainstream because this show is not mainstream. Uh, we'll, we'll, right. we'll get into mainstream and say, Hey, uh, you know, mainstream is basically saying, Hey, America, You've got to choose one side or the other, um, and so they're kind of getting into uh, personal a person's morality, uh, their ethics, and saying if you think this way, uh, you you've got that label versus you think that way, you've got la that label. How, how do you feel in regards to that? And how do you how does Amer how does American get past that and say wait I yeah. I, I actually go ahead yeah so. The <laughs> A great question in terms of how do we get past it, because it, it is an outrageously polarizing political topic. And um, it's very clear to figure out how someone votes based on how they think about this issue. And it's typically not based on knowledge. It's just opinion <laughs> that you know people either love or hate Obamacare based on how they vote, not what they know um, on either side. And, and so this whole health care issue is is really polarizing in a couple of ways. On one side of the equation, we've got at the extreme left, there's almost a thought that the government is the only answer, the only solution. And on the extreme right, almost an opposite opinion that says, well, the government's the only problem. <laughs> and our reality in healthcare, if you look at where the dollars come from and how they flow, about half of the healthcare economy in this country is funded through government programs, government sources. Okay. And about half of the healthcare in this country is delivered and, and, and funded by private sources. And until we give up on the government being the only problem or the government being the only solution, we will never really deal with the fact it's how do we connect these two systems that are both paying in, and quite frankly, it's not working well enough for either the public or the private system because we can't proactively connect them in a nonpartisan way. That's really where I believe the answer in this country lies. So dig into that a little bit more because you're bringing up a, a really valid point where you're saying, hey, it's almost 50-50. You've got government involvement, but then you've got private corporation banking involvement. Um, how do we how do we mesh the two? Yeah, I'll, I'll use um, I'll use hospital reimbursements as an example. So uh, Medicare, which is the largest single purchaser in terms of, of dollar volume for for hospital systems in this country, um, larger than any single private health insurance plan. So uh, Medicare is is for most hospitals. That's Number one payer is what Medicare pays them. Medicare pays hospitals based on a formula that, uh, that Medicare has developed that is based on cost for an efficient hospital system. Um, the average hospital in the country, uh, most recent data showed they lost 9.9% on average on Medicare services. So every time a Medicare patient shows up on average, the hospital is losing 9.9%. Mm -hmm. So it's costing the hospital a little more than it costs to deliver uh, the, the care. Um, and that's moved over time. It was break even, um, if you go back about a decade ago, and it's sliding down because the government's trying to, to manage the expense for taxpayers. The government really says that hospitals aren't being as efficient as they could be, and hospitals say that the government's underpaying. Either way, it's about a 10% loss. 
But private insurance, so your Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, your United Healthcare plan, Cigna, Aetna, who, you know, pick, pick the yeah. network you want. After discount, private insurance on average is paying hospitals in this country 241% of Medicare. So you can have two people in rooms right next to each other in the hospital seeing the same doctor mm. for the same procedure. One of them is, is age 45 and covered by their employer, and the other is age 70 and covered by Medicare. Medicare kicks in for most people at age 65. That person that's covered by Medicare for the exact same service is paying far, far, far less to that hospital. This, this price discrimination um, continues to grow on an annual basis. There's no transparency. Um, there's no accountability. So when the government squeezes down the pricing to try to get the, the, the cost for taxpayers under control, the system is just throwing the dollars over and raising costs on employees and employers and that whole system. And it's like you're squeezing a balloon. So the government squeezes one side of the balloon because we don't have enough tax dollars. <laughs> so yeah. we have to control that cost. But the air doesn't come out of the balloon. The air just shifted over in a hidden tax towards employees. Until we can get transparent on this issue, it will never get resolved. And so costs will just continue to grow up to go up for everybody who's buying private insurance until we find a way to connect the two. So you, you've got a career built in the insurance industry. What has spawned you to say, I'm going to take a stand on this? And yes, I come from a career and, and, a, and an expertise, if you will, from the insurance industry, but I'm going to come out and I'm going to, and, and I'm going to say... And I'm going to say this and take a stand on it. What, what has spawned you to do this, Dan? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. I am a, uh, I'm a huge fan of Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game, that he released last year. And in that, uh, he talks about the health of the game. Whatever game you're in, that's your industry, that's your economy. It's not just your business. It's everything around your business has to be healthy. So you don't want to have the, the, the best deck chair on the Titanic. If the Titanic sinks, it doesn't matter that you had a great view. Huh, you're going to drown anyway. So I don't believe that's what, what's happening in health insurance at this point in any way is sustainable. And if we as an industry, those of us who really know how this financing works, <laughs> and, and see what's happening. If we don't get involved to really try to solve the problems and challenges, then the, the industry that I've been in and in, in my career, and I don't have that much longer left in it, uh, but, but that you know, but by the time I retire, um, shortly thereafter, the industry would go away if we can't find a way to get it less complicated, to lower the cost and improve the quality. And if we would stop pointing the political finger at each other, we could actually do that. Um, and that's really why I, I, I'm doing it. It, it, you know, it, it, it is not that uh, the insurance companies that we work with, um, they largely don't like what I say. <laughs> so, um, and, and, you know, and, and, and that's okay. I'm not, I'm not in business to make them happy. I don't make them happy a, a lot. Um, I, I more than anybody else, I'm looking out for the employers and their employees and the taxpayers, um, because I see every dollar that gets wasted in an inefficient health insurance plan is a dollar that that employer could have reinvested in their business or could have put in compensation and paid to their workers. What, what people pay in health insurance, whether it's the employer or the employee, that's part of their wages. And, and, it's a waste of wages for us to be spending this amount of money. Um, last year, the average employer-sponsored health insurance plan, so you, you take everybody that has that kind of coverage, for a family of four, the national average last year for the total cost of that insurance was $28,386. Oh, Twenty-eight grand. <laughs> now, that includes what the employer paid, 
what the employee paid per paycheck, and then what they actually paid in deductibles, co-pays, those kinds of things. You roll it together. The average family of four last year was over $28,000. Wow. The median household, the median household income in this country is less than $60,000. Right, right. So it, you know, if the, if the average household didn't have their employer paying part of this or the government paying part of this, you know, you'd be working half the year just for, for healthcare. Yeah. That doesn't work. And, and, it, and it, will, it will ultimately, I, in the book, I use the example of the mosquito. Um, because we, you know, the Discovery Channel does not run Mosquito Week once a year. <laughs> they run Shark Week. Because sharks are, you know, <laughs> exciting and scary and that. But the deadliest animal in the world is actually the mosquito. <laughs> More people in the world die from diseases from mosquito bites than any other animal in the world. But mosquitoes aren't very exciting, but they're a massive threat. And if I look at healthcare, I, I, I call it in the book a Costquito. So it sounds like a lunch special at a Mexican food restaurant. That's not what it is, um, but it's a cost mosquito, the Costquito. I believe it is the greatest threat to the American economy. Now, this was before COVID-19, um, which I think has taken everything's place. But healthcare is the number one expenditure by the federal government. So it's taking of, of the tax dollars we pay. More of that money goes to pay for healthcare than any other thing that the gov federal government does or buys. It's number one expenditure of that. The average cost for a family of four is $28,000, you know, all in for that. It's the number one reason that people file for personal bankruptcy. I mean, we can just go on and on and see that the, the weight of this inefficient cost is not sustainable. And I think that's why voters, uh, voters consistently before COVID-19 came up, and I haven't seen polls <laughs> Everything's kind of changed on that. But right. before that, healthcare was in every poll that I saw, healthcare was the number one uh, issue for voters. So the, the, the voters in the country, they may not know why it doesn't work or why it's expensive or why they don't like it, but they do know that they're not satisfied with status quo. And is, is, has that lowered the life expectancy of the average American citizen? It has. It has. Sadly, um, you know, I, I've spent a reasonable amount of time trying to get my my hands on, on really quality data and what's really happening, because there's a lot of things that contribute to life expectancy in the United States that uh, that I can't blame on doctors and hospitals. You know, there, I mean, there's sure. there's something, <laughs> you know, what that that which we choose to eat in our country sure. and a lot of other things that end up contributing to how long we, we live. Um, I can't really blame the doctors and the hospitals for that, but there is a study that's done by a group called the Commonwealth Fund, and Commonwealth Fund um, compares healthcare and other things across the, the, the globe. So it's not just the United States. It is a global view of, of comparing, and they conduct a study called Mortality Amenable to Healthcare, and that's a mouthful to try to figure out what in the world they're talking about. What they're really talking about in, the, in their analysis is at what rate do people in your country die from something that could have been found and cured? In other words, mm. there was a cure available within the healthcare system, but you didn't get it and you died. So I view that as what's the failure rate of your healthcare system? And in the United States, of, of, of the economically developed countries that Commonwealth Fund has studied, yeah. the United States has the worst mortality rate of any country that they study. In fact, comparing to the other economically developed country averages, people in the United States die from things that could have been found and cured at a 58% faster rate than the rest of the world. Now you're talking about. Talk go ahead, keep going, Dan. I, I, I just, I, you know, I, I think that's shocking, and it's things like diabetes and other other things where yeah. we can manage these illnesses if we can get people the care, but they're not getting the care, and and Americans are literally dying at a faster rate from things that could have been cured. We have treatments, 
they're just not getting them. And that's where I think we need to be focusing our attention. Um, but when we say it's all the government's problem or only the government can answer it, then we're really not dealing with the issue of how do we connect patients with the providers who can help them get better. That's where we need to go. Yeah, and I, and I, and I think that there's – one of the issues that I frequently address on this program is uh, reminding listeners, look, the government – we don't work for the government. The government works for us, and the the, right. the 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 bigger the bigger we allow that government to get, and the more powerful we allow that government to get, the the the, the less power we have in the government. But we're losing the principle uh, that 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 government is meant to be elected by us and work for us. So let me insert this now. Then you're talking about cures, and states like California and, and New York are putting more emphasis on. Uh, on these uh, preventative vaccines, but then wait a second, should more emphasis be put on the cures? Now you enter pharmaceutical debate and next month we'll be hosting uh, three-time New York best-selling author, uh, Gerald Posner, uh, who's a former Wall Street attorney. And he's written a book on the greed and the lies in the pharmaceutical so in industry. So is too much emphasis, and again, we're saying that the government's working for us. If we're losing that, then we're digging ourselves, if we're losing that notion, then we're digging ourselves into a hole. Are we allowing these corporations to function off of uh, profit, profiteering, uh, off of, off of uh, the capitalistic uh, uh, mechanism that we've allowed the economy to run off of? Um, if that's the case, and we need to put more emphasis on uh, on on them finding a cure for us rather than um, you know mandatorily vaccinating our kids with seventy different vaccine vaccines that uh, could end up causing the child because of their biological makeup autism or whatnot. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that? I've I've, I've kind of uh, given a lot of different angles, uh, but absorbing yeah. what you could. What are your thoughts in that regard? Poor alignment leads to overregulation, and I think that to be the that if I was writing the book again today, I'd probably put that line in there. Um, so we don't have aligned incentives between public and private systems, between the pharmaceutical industry, the insurance companies, and the government. And so everybody's grabbing for what they can. And then the government comes over the top. Instead of aligning the stakeholders, they come up with bad regulations that just make it worse. Um, in the pharmacy space, I'll give you an example. Yeah. And, and, you know, a pharmaceutical industry is getting, and healthcare in total is getting uh, kind of a better view from the public based on the response to COVID of, hey, we need a vaccine we, you know, for that. We need treatment. So, hey, maybe these companies aren't so bad. And, and I don't think these companies have bad people. I think they make um, misaligned, greedy decisions at times. Um, so we will um, we'll use pharmaceutical industry as an example. In the United States, we have a little over 4% of the world's population. We account for over 42% of the world's pharmaceutical revenue. Wow. Is that okay? And that, that's where the question we need to be asking not does the government mandate whether you have this treatment or that treatment we we need to let doctors be doctors and it shouldn't be the federal government or it shouldn't be an insurance company we can measure outcomes and and, and in fact in the insurance world we do <laughs> so we know if a patient starts with the right primary care physician we know that their their cost their, their health status, these things will be better down the line based on the, the other doctors they refer to, the facilities they refer to. There are, there are chains of quality that exist inside of, of healthcare that need to be unleashed. Um, but we are, unfortunately, um, we're keeping those opportunities un, under wraps um, with the debate that we have, have had. Um, so, so, Dan, we can do better. <laughs> what do you so we've got and I, and I want to segue into um, because really this is this is a great time to be talking about 
healthcare reform uh, uh, with this with this COVID nineteen uh, crisis, and uh, and I want you to I want you to talk a little bit about that. I mean, Trump. Let's say um, it, it seems like he's you know with, with the with the Dr. Fauci, you know, one side of the spectrum, the other side. Of it. I mean, we opened up today's program with um, uh, Michael Hall, who's a Miami Beach based uh, a, a medical doctor, uh, and and he was mm-hmm. coming out about um, the the Zika virus, not necessarily the Zika virus, but the pesticide, which is a known neurotoxin by a study out at Oslo, and then the CDC, and then Governor and now Senator Rick Scott was. Uh, was saying, hey, you've got it, you got it. But he he had actually met in Aspen. Doctor Hall had met in Aspen uh, uh, with Fauci, um, and 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 Fauci is uh, agreeing that there was actually no known case uh, of the Zika virus. But yet, uh, because of optics, the 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 government there, the local government again, uh, we are the government. Let's not forget that uh, was uh, w- allowed this this very controversial uh, known neurotoxic pesticide to be sprayed. Um, taken, 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 taken that, you fast forward here now, four years later, we've got the COVID-19. Trump seems to be, and again, I answered at Fauci, uh, just because, uh, the pro, uh, today's first, uh, first guest had, had, had talked about, uh, Fauci. So yeah. you've got this kind of, uh, initial kind of, uh, almost corrupt type, um, uh, 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 scenario involving Fauci. You insert then, uh, you, you, you insert then, um, uh, Bill Gates, a computer engineer, and I think the average person is just going to say, "Hey, wait a second. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a computer engineer. Why why is he some sort of now authoritarian on um on on a on a global pandemic?" And then he's inserting again the vaccines, and so here's a here's a vaccine debate, and then uh, microchipping, and so that's when now people are saying, "Okay, hold on a second. Wait, wait, wait a second. Um, so, uh, but this is again. Let's step back and say this is a good time." to be inserting this type of discussion. There's absolutely no doubt about it. This is perhaps a, a optimum time to be trying to deliver every American <laughs> in the country a, a, a decent type of health care. Um, but the Trump administration, and I'll get to my main point here, main question in a moment, thanks for... Uh, the, 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 the Trump administration seems to be battling kind of these initial uh, kind of elements of, uh, you know, whatever it may be, trying to get the economy back and going and that sort of thing. So with that all said, and, and you can you can certainly insert your your comments and opinions on, on on that. But I want to I want I want to backtrack and say, well, hey, wait a second. Obama uh, seemed to be the first president uh, that I can remember to actually try to deliver that to to every American. What do you like then about Obamacare, and what do you dislike about it? Yeah, Obamacare. So what I like about it is that about uh, approximately 20 million people in this country have health insurance today that um, in the absence of Obamacare, they, they would most likely be uninsured. So from a social justice standpoint, um, a, as, a, as a dad, I would have a hard time putting my head on the pillow if I knew my kids didn't have the protection of health insurance. I want them to have access to doctors. That. So I, I believe from a social justice, that is a good that came out of Obamacare. The pre-existing condition protections, I think that's a, I think that's a good thing for the vast majority of Americans. They already had that. So Obamacare gets credit for that, but the vast majority of Americans already already had that security. They had employer-sponsored coverage. For the most part, they already had that coverage. And if you're in Medicare, you had that. So the pre-existing condition, I give, them a, I give Obamacare a little bit of credit for that. A challenge with Obamacare is uh, the complexity and the cost. They created a really complicated machine that the vast majority of people don't understand, kind of why the website didn't work, the co-ops they created failed. Um, they, they wanted to blame the insurance carriers as the devil in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll come back to that, how, how I, I believe that the insurance carriers and, and the Obama administration were in, in cahoots on this. But um, the problem that I've got with it is the, the cost. So the, the total cost of that and the latest congressional budget office scoring of this, and they've now stopped. But in the latest scoring, the cost was right at about $2 trillion for a 10-year cost for Obamacare. What that says is we're spending $10,000 per person per year 
to provide coverage. I think we could have extended coverage to those 20 million people for less than $10,000 per year had we just been smart about what we were trying to do. So I think it was administratively inefficient and financially very inefficient. And we have really only funded about 20 cents on the dollar of what Obamacare really cost. So from a social justice standpoint, it did extend coverage and, per, and expanded pre-existing condition protections. Those are good things. From an economic standpoint, it was a, it, it was a, a very inefficient way to try to buy those services. Very good. Very, very well said. Um, okay. Now, Dan, as a fellow American, we've never seen, uh, uh, certainly not, not my lifetime, uh, I don't think yours either, uh, we've never seen uh, this type of uh, pandemic. Uh, we've now got, and, and again, this is, uh, this is, this is going to be a, a question just for you as an American, um, we've now got uh, certain movements uh, Michigan, Virginia, I don't know about Texas, um, uh, I'd imagine uh, it, 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 Texas being uh, one of the backbones, certainly, of what it means to be an American, uh, in my view, and not a Texan. Uh, yep. uh, but, uh, but, but, but anyway, so what is, what is your view, then, uh, for listeners to understand, uh, author of The Voter's Guide to Healthcare, nonpartisan, again, nonpartisan, Candid and relevant look at politics, healthcare, and American. Very important here. It means crossing over political lines, trying to unite, mm -hmm. not divide politically. Very important. Uh, what is your view on what's happening? And of course, uh, uh, what I inserted into that question was uh, these uh, these various protests. You know, people having an issue with uh, with saying saying saying, "Hey, this is this is this is this is an infringement on my right to be able to go outside and breathe air and go to a beach." Well, what's your view on this, Dan? Well, we have not done a very good job in this country of trying to figure out uh, really where, where the government's rights and the individual's rights stop and start. We've got this in, in a lot of places, and it's now playing out on this issue. Um, I'll, I'll use a healthcare example, and then I'll come back to COVID-19. I'll use Medicaid as an example. So Medicaid is the government health insurance program for, um, for poor Americans. So for those who can't afford it, even underneath what you earn for Obamacare, Medicaid exists to, to provide health insurance. It's free. It doesn't cost the participant anything. Yet 25% of the uninsured people in this country are eligible for free Medicaid today and don't take it. So they- They must be from Texas. Exactly. Probably. <laughs> uh, well, the largest number of those are, ironically. Um, so, so in in my in my tough love view of this, you know, so the challenge for the hospitals of kind of this kind of freedom and chaos with no accountability is a person shows up at a hospital with no Medicaid, no insurance, no money. Um, they don't, you know, I mean, it's the poorest in our society. That hospital, by law, has to provide care and try to get that person better. And then they're going to send them home and know they don't have a doctor. They can't go to a pharmacy. They don't have that. And then they come back. We have an organized system of care set up for those people called Medicaid. And yet 25% of the uninsured people in this country are eligible for don't take it. And in and, and my tough love world, I would say that that person, that person could die in the waiting room if they don't sign up for the care that's available for them. So a hospital should be able to say, if that person's eligible for Medicaid, I will deliver the care, but I'm signing them up for Medicaid so that I as a hospital can get reimbursed for the care I delivered from a program that exists. And this person then can have access to a doctor and to a pharmacy and to the other things that's available today. They just aren't willing to take it. So, you know, I, that's kind of in, in my tough love world you know, we, we want to say, or a lot of people say they want to eliminate, you know, the uninsured issue in this country, we want everybody to have health insurance. Well, everybody can't have it if you let some people say they don't want it and it's free. It's a, it's a real challenge. Healthcare cannot be a right without being a responsibility. And politically, that's not very popular. 
Um, but that's that's really our challenge related to that. So we we now kind of have that this whole rights and wrongs and what does the government say related to health insurance and health care happening again with COVID-19. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's very interesting to try to we, we've been working with a, a large number of employers um, and trying to help them figure out how to navigate this space. And if, if you think about it, after 9-11, yes. you know, we as Americans, we saw these airplanes fly into skyscrapers. And all of us said, I don't think I want to get on an airplane. That doesn't look very, very safe. So the government created the Transportation Security Administration so that it would, one, be safe to fly, and two, it would feel safe to fly. And Americans got back on airplanes eventually and, and kind of realized, yeah, but it's not, it's not like it used to be. You know when you go to the airport, you have to have your ID. You have to go through the screen. I mean, the world changed, and the government created a, a, a system to take care of that. We have a new enemy in this virus that's actually more deadly than the, the terrorists, um, if you, you know, un unfortunately, yeah. if you look at the fatalities that, that are there, we can't see this enemy anywhere, and yet it's kind of everywhere. And employers now have a responsibility to create a safe work environment in the same way the government created or had the responsibility to create a safe airport. The employer has to do that now on their own. It's not a government job. It's an employer job. And the employer has to make people feel safe coming back to work. So my take on this is, is, is really it's less about the government saying whether businesses can or can't be open and that, you know, that's, that, that, that's the battle between government and, and freedoms, and that's always going to be there. The ones that I'm really feeling for right now are the employers who are wrestling with the need to get people back in the workplace for their right. business to run, and yet the fear of responsibility, they don't know how to create a safe workplace. Um, our chief medical officer in our company right now is, um, is consulting with a sausage manufacturer, and this sausage manufacturer found, their in, found themselves in the news. Um, they had about half of their employees uh, contract coronavirus. Wow. And, um, and unfortunately, two have already passed away. And, you know, it's a bad situation. So he, as a medical doctor, went in to try to help them because there's no government agency to try to figure this out. Um, you know, I'm sure there's, there's lawyers out there who will sue and drag it to courts, so then the government will be involved. But, you know, you got an employer who's going, wait a minute, I, I'm trying to figure this. What they figured out was there was one part of the building where the air circulation system had no filter in it. Hmm. So one person likely had, had the, the condition in that, in that facility, coughed, I'm sure, multiple times on the day they were there. That got up into the air circulation system and then effectively showered everybody in that part of the building with COVID-19. Every employee in that section of the building got COVID-19. Wow. And so, I, and so I, I, what, what I struggle with being kind of in, in trying to help employers figure it out and how do you, you deal with this, you know, I've, I've now seen situations where you go, wow, that is an outrageously contagious virus that could infect everybody in that section of the building got it because there was no filter in their air circulation system. And, 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 and so there were others, they were doing contact tracing and there were other employees in other parts of the building that got it, that gave it to a few others. So they tracked it back. And then they figured out there was a small group of, uh, of guys in the, uh, that worked there that each evening after work, they would go to a park, uh, drink a few beers and kick the soccer ball around and they all got it, gave it to each other, and then dragged it into the office. So, you know, this, this contact tracing of trying to figure out the source is really difficult in a work environment. And every employer 
is now having to try to figure out how to do that so that they can, in fact, provide a safe workplace. Um, it's a real challenge. So the, the, the news right now is about the government and are they forcing people to shut down or are they not? And that makes good news because it makes people mad. But the real <laughs> issue is, is the real issue is how do employers make it safe to go back into the workplace? Because right. most of them, they, they had never had to come up with what I call a health security plan. Now, every single employer has to have their own health security plan based on their air circulation system and their front desk and, you know, where are their bathrooms and do they have a coffee pot and they got to think about all this stuff. Um, and, and they're trying to. I think the vast majority of employers are really trying to figure it out. But uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous time because it is so contagious. Den, are you running for office? <laughs> I, I have received that question. Um, no, <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I actually did think a little bit about it. Uh, the, the district where I live is, um, is, uh, is the, the, the representative in the house is a, uh, is a physician, uh, Dr. Michael Burgess and, um, Dr. Burgess is a, uh, is a, is a, uh, tea party uh, Republican. So he caucuses with the Tea Party. He's on on the extreme right. And uh, he was the author of legislation called MACRA. And MACRA reworked how doctors get paid by Medicare. And so I was reading through the Congressional Budget Office analysis of MACRA. And um, the number one source of financing for MACRA was debt. In other words, it oh, was boy. not funded. It just <laughs> didn't get paid for. We pay, we're paying the doctors more, but we're not, you know, we're not going to cut any other program. We're not going to raise taxes. We're not going to, we're just, we're just going to pay the doctors more and put, put more debt on the future generation. And, you know, for about a year, I really did think about running off for office because I was, I was so upset that we would have someone who caucuses with the Tea Party, supposed to be the most fiscally conservative group in the country, and yet the, 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 the Tea Party conservative on his signature legislation that aligned with his group, he's a physician, it's how we pay physicians, he, he put that burden on an unfunded liability on taxpayers. And you know, I, I just felt like that was political malpractice that that well said. that it, it, so there, there was about a year that uh, that I really did think about it because I I was just so bothered by by the hypocrisy of that um, because I you know I I I I I lean towards being a fiscally conservative person I believe that that we should pay for the programs we put in place and if we can't afford it we shouldn't have it. Um, and so when I see things like that, it does at times compel me to think that, that, that maybe I throw my hat in the ring and try to try to do something. But, um, you know, it's, it's just it's I, I, I don't think that's my calling. I, I think I can I can do better trying to help employers, hospital systems, insurance companies um, face the truth and try to get this this whole system less complicated less expensive, with higher quality, that covers everybody. And I believe we can do it. A Voter's Guide to Healthcare, author Den Bishop. Den, thanks for joining the program. Would you please take a moment for some final thoughts to share with listeners? Uh, the book, I'd imagine, is available at uh, Amazon. Uh, please tell listeners where they can, where they can buy it uh, and uh, a website they can visit. Um, as uh, Americans, and, and, and if you're listening listening outside of America, as you try to uh, strengthen and reform, reshape, if needed, uh, your uh, your healthcare system, uh, please use uh, Den uh, Den's book as uh, as a guide. Uh, so, so some final words from you, Den. Uh, certainly, your thoughts and, uh, direct listeners to where they can where they can purchase the the book. And 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 as a as a parting message, Den. Um, I would like you to please use um, use another country, if you will, uh, as a model that Americans can 
can aspire to 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 engineer a a a, a healthcare uh, a better healthcare healthcare system. So if you if you if you if you uh, tackle those 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 items, then. Thank you, Ian. You know, for for me, the parting thought related to healthcare in the United States. Speaking to your your listeners that are either in the United States or concerned about people in the United States, is that the, the government is neither the sole problem nor the sole solution. How we connect a free enterprise private healthcare system that empowers what I think are the best doctors and hospitals in the world. Um, to provide care, but to do that in a more cost-effective manner uh, is within reach if we think about how to connect these systems together. And, you know, the United States often gets compared to Canada when it comes to healthcare because the Canadian healthcare system covers all Canadians. Um, but in Canada, there's actually a higher percentage of Canadians that buy individual um, private health insurance than in the United States, because most Canadians buy supplemental coverage to cover what the government program doesn't cover. Um, so they've kind of found a way to connect public and private together in Canada. But to me, that's not the greatest difference between Canadian system and the American system. It's really not the financing. The Canadian healthcare system is built on strong primary care. It's you and your family doctor in Canada. A physician in Canada is more than four times more likely to be family or general practice because their system was built on taking care of people, preventing, treating early, not based on doing more profitable, high-cost procedures. In the United States, we've built a system based on the economics, and we need to reverse that, follow Canada and get a high-performing family doctor, primary care-based system that provides the hub upon which everything else can spend. If we could do that, and I think the virtual care that's happening with COVID-19 does give us a chance, not only in the United States, but I think worldwide, to think about whether we maybe could get some higher-performing, more efficient primary care built on that family doc. I think high-performing family docs our greatest hope for getting this better. Incredible, Dan. You brought us some great points there. Uh, wonderful way to close this out. Uh, the book is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. That is it, AmazonBarnesNoble.com, yes. Fantastic. Dan, we look forward to bringing you back on the program. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, author Dan Bishop. Again, uh, he's the president of Holmes, Holmes Murphy, one of the nation's largest employee-owned and controlled insurance brokers where he leads the employee benefits practice. He also is the co-founder of ACAP HealthWorks, an innovation and consulting firm focusing on immeasurably improving health. Uh, look, uh, you've, you've, got a, you've, you've got a professional in the insurance industry. But he's coming out and he's looking past insurance. You know, he's talking about this, uh, this fellow running off the, the, the Tea Party platform and uh, building, uh, building his legis legislature off of debt. Right, that's, that's one of the biggest issues that I, that, I, that I exhort upon you to investigate. So here we've got an insurance professional saying, okay, look past your political party. Party, Let's, let's work on being good Americans and taking care of one, 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 another, one of another. Brave soul. Uh, just like Dr. Michael Hall in Miami Beach saying, hey, hey look, I'm, I'm first and foremost, I'm a doctor. I don't care about language. I don't care about race. I care about the Hippocratic Oath and caring for my fellow human being. Um, so we've got great people doing great things and I appreciate you listening to discussions of truth. Again, revisiting the whole debt concept, 
Okay. My issue is, hey, you've got a private bank running a public government. That is fact. This is fact. Woodrow Wilson passed it, passed the act in 1913, the Federal Reserve Act, two years after Rockefeller had been called for an antitrust in 1911. 1913 is when the Rockefeller Foundation was formed. Woodrow Wilson, former president of Princeton University, later lamented the fact that that act was passed. And, and throughout the history of this country, Throughout its history, private banking, central banking, and as far as I know, I'm not an economist, but that is interchangeable, those two, those two terms, is exactly why Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton dueled. And what we do know is that Thomas Jefferson was highly opposed to a central bank. And he was opposed to the elements of central bank that Alexander Hamilton had written into the uh, the first bank for the United States in the U.S. Treasury, which, Ham which Hamilton uh, founded. Uh, so debt is a big concern and should be a big concern for the United States. For a population and a civilization that is as productive as it is. What did Den say? Uh, the U.S. population represents 4% of the global population. Yet 40% of its pharmaceutical use? The pharmaceutical industry has a stranglehold on the American people and its health. This has been another Discussion of Truth. Very fortunate to be broadcasting to you and for you. And I appreciate you listening. Support the program. Support the guests. We are all in this together. Stop Mass Media, folks. StopMassMedia.com. You can hear... Me stream live typically every Wednesday. Next week, I'll be at you at 4.15. So uh, since this pandemic has started, I've actually been doing longer shows. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. Typically, I will post and tell when I'm be starting my show. We'll be opening up next week with investigative journalist RT, InfraWars, amongst other, Helen Bininsky. And you can check her out at Helen Destroy. That's D-E-S. T-R-O-Y, Helen Destroy. Kind of like Helen of Troy, but Helen Destroy because she seeks to do just that, destroy corruption uh, on any levels, uh, whatever they may be. Ian Trottier, I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-R, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and again, you can hear the program live typically at 5 Eastern, sometimes starting at 4 now because of this COVID-19. I'm adding more shows We've been doing, a, on average, two to three hours now for about two months because of this COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic. And folks, you're simply not receiving the information that you should be via mainstream uh, uh, media. You're simply not. And uh, the fact that you're listening to me proves that. So share this program by Den's book. Uh, and until next week, folks, uh, stand up for what you believe in. Stand up for what you know is right. Do something about it. Speak out about it. Write about it. And be awesome.